This is Nursing Australia, proudly brought to you by APNA, the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association. Hello and welcome to Nursing Australia. I'm Suzanne Blackaby. Nurses across the country are gearing up to immunise the nation against COVID-19. As each day goes by, we learn more about the important role that we'll play in the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. In these episodes, we bring you the answers to many of your questions about the rollout with content from our second COVID webinar on the vaccine rollout featuring Australia's Chief Nursing and Midwifery Officer. Everyone has made an amazing contribution and I think the community recognised even more what nurses contribute to our society now than they did before. Then we hear about the challenges that primary healthcare nurses will face over coming months. It's the time of year when patients are coming back to see their GP, to see their nurses for their chronic care and to have all of their paperwork updated. So it's a busy time. And we finish off with a bit of a laugh with two humorous nurses. Especially on night shifts and stuff, you just sit around and tell random stories and blow everyone's minds. And I was like, oh, I should do a podcast because I'm funny. (laughs) And no one told me not to. Like everyone just said, go for it. It sounds great. But first, the news. Coronavirus jumps rooms in a quarantine hotel. EOI for GPs interested in giving out the vaccine closes. And AstraZeneca vaccine may not be as effective with new variants. This is Nursing Australia News. Hello, I'm Mitch Wall. Victorian health authorities are investigating how the highly infectious UK variant of COVID-19 has jumped rooms in a Melbourne quarantine hotel. They believe a woman that was staying across the corridor from a family of five, known to have the virus, caught COVID-19 when doors were opened for meal deliveries. The expressions of interest for general practices wishing to become facilities to administer the COVID-19 vaccines has now closed. It's believed that more than 5,000 clinics across the country have registered. Primary health networks will now play a key role in the assessment process, deciding which facilities will administer the vaccine. On the mandatory training for clinic staff, it is believed this will now be released in the coming days. Professor Murphy from the Department of Health has told News Limited that it's in everyone's interest to be vaccinated. If, as we suspect, these vaccines are effective at preventing transmission, the sooner we get the population (coughs) vaccinated, the sooner people stand up, not only will they be protected, but that we will get on this path towards good herd immunity and that will speed up the return to international travel. AstraZeneca say that their vaccine, that is due to be widely used in Australia, may be modified this year to combat different variants of the virus emerging across the globe. The scientists behind the current vaccine say the new variants seem to be showing some resistance to the jabs. To ensure nurses are kept up to speed on the COVID vaccine rollout, APNA is hosting a series of webinars for its members. In the second webinar of the series, we were joined by Alison McMillan, Australia's Chief Nursing and Midwifery Officer. Alison answered questions live from members and we bring you the recording of the event here on Nursing Australia. We started by asking Alison to give an overview of the vaccine rollout. The last year has made me incredibly proud to be an Australian nurse and to be a part of what has been the most amazing experience, I think, for us all. I know people throw words around like hero and frontline, but I think everyone has made a contribution in different ways, whether it's whether you juggled your workload and managed your kids, whether you did work in an ICU or in a clinic working with worried people wherever it was that you worked um, everyone has made a 
an amazing contribution and I think um, the community recognised even more the what nurses contribute to our society now than they did before. I think it's also very important to remember um, we call Australia the lucky country and we are a very lucky in a very lucky place in comparison to most of the rest of the world. We've had yet another day of no community transmission in Australia, but that hasn't come without um, suffering, um, hard work, and the enormous effort that the Australian population has made to contribute to this pandemic and the, the sacrifices that have been made. Um, and so we need to, um, it's important to reflect on, on that um, and not become complacent um, as the sun shines and we go about our business, unless of course you're in Western Australia, um, pretty much generally as, um, as we would have normally with a few restrictions. This vaccine rollout is huge, complex, and I have to tell you for, right up front, we don't have all of the answers yet. We, this, is, um, this is probably the biggest logistics undertaking this country has ever done. The fortunate person we are in, as you know, we don't have community transmission. We're not, we don't have the, the need to roll this out as other countries have done. And so you will have seen and, and all through the media and all through the discussions that we have been very careful and uh, considered um, in the, uh, the application of the, the vaccines. And as you know, the Pfizer vaccine has now been um, approved, but that as yet is the only one that's been approved for use here in Australia. We are going to focus on those most vulnerable. So that is those that are working who may become exposed to the virus, those working in hotel quarantine, those working in testing clinics, those um, perhaps even laboratories, um, and then the most vulnerable. So that is, of course, those we know, the elderly and those with chronic um, disease. Um, and so that's where our prioritization goes. We will not have enough vaccine to vaccinate everyone on the first day when it arrives on the shores. And in fact, the first day it arrives on the shores, we have to batch test it. So there's a rollout and it's called that for exactly the same, that reason. We will roll it out across the country um, and that is going to take us time. And we're working through all of the logistics. But in fact, it's probably the best way to, to express it is that there is the aged care rollout, which has been led by the Commonwealth. It'll be an in-reach programme. It's, it's all been worked through and we're working to a time frame at the end of this month. And then there's the broader phases of, um, of the community um, rollout as well with the different phases and different groups. And you can see all of this detail. So I will remind everyone that the place to go for reliable information and constantly updated is to go to our website, which is health.gov.au. There's lots of material there that will help you understand um, the, the strategy, the rollout information for everyone around where we're at and how this is working. The other thing is I know that there's some pre predetermined questions here, but we are right now sitting in my office, Brian and I, working through there is a training program that's been commissioned by the department and um, has been put together by the Australian College of Nursing it's online training, it's focused at health professionals, particularly those who will be delivering the vaccine. It will give you information about the vaccine and about the, firstly, the Pfizer vaccine, because that's the first that's been approved. And also, most importantly, about reminding or educating people on how to manage safely multi-dose vials, because 
old girls like me, I remember when more things came in a multi-dose file, but for many of you, that might be something relatively new, and it's something you will uh, know and have confidence that you will learn and master very quickly, but it is something different to you may not be familiar with. So training is coming, um, and there'll be an announcement of that, that very shortly. It'll be free, it'll be online, it will help you make sure that wherever and however you've got a role in this a role in this rollout, a role, a, a place to play in this vaccine rollout, um, you'll have the information you need um, to do that safely and to protect patients. That's wonderful. Thanks, Alison. Much appreciated. Um, so we might just jump straight into the, the pre-prepared questions. Over the last two weeks, APNA has received about a thousand questions that have come from the first webinar uh, and also come via the nurse support line. And we have um, distilled these questions and are going to be asking uh, some questions that represent the most asked about topics. So I might just pass over to um, APNA founder, Sam Moses, who's going to get us underway and ask the first question. Sam, over to you. So I guess the first uh, question relates to PPE. So what PPE should be worn um, during COVID vaccination clinics? Thanks for the question, Sam. So as always, I'm not going to directly answer the question because it's important that I re-emphasise some things. This last year, we've seen such a focus on PPE, but I'm going to remind everyone that the prevention of infection, transmission and, the, and control of infection is much, much more than just PPE. And you need to remember that there are multiple parts to this and the hierarchy of controls. So the environment, the, the, the things that you do, so you know, we, to prevent transmission, to protect you and your patient. So don't be drawn into the view that if you have the right PPE, that's gonna protect you alone. You need to use all of the aspects of infection prevention control that you were taught and that you need to remember in this situation. So if you're running, if you're working in a vaccination clinic where there's no community transmission, you don't need PPE. Um, it will depend on the circumstance and the rules and requirements. So um, you will need to be familiar with the requirements um, in the jurisdiction in which you work, because this rollout is gonna last for a long time. And so if you were in a role, if you were in a clinic at the moment, for instance, in Victoria, you, and you were in a general clinic, you would not need to wear a mask. But if you were in Western Australia, where the rules have recently changed because they've got community transmission, you will need to wear a mask. So it will be important that people running the clinics should have provide you with the necessary PPE if there's PPE required. Um, and uh, you need to be familiar with the professional, with the requirements of PPE in the places in which you're working. And that advice can obviously be found not only on our website, but on the websites of the jurisdictions in which you work. So it's important that you're familiar with it and do that. Thanks, Alison. I guess, yeah, PPE has been front of mind for so long now. It's, it's where our brains go um, when we're out there in the field. Another really popular question or a group of popular questions came um, into us at APNA around the national booking system. So with the national booking system, does it mean that we won't have access or, or ways of checking that patients are eligible for each stage of the rollout? We understand that general practice and primary care is most likely to be involved in the 1B stage of the rollout, although we do have lots of nurses um, who work in primary care that will be involved in 1A as well. So, 
being mindful of that. So the, the national booking system, is that going to give us access to check if a patient is eligible or if they meet the requirements to receive the vaccine at that point in time as the government's directed? I have to, Suzanne, um, I'm going to confess I'm not that familiar with the booking system. I know what it's intended to do. I know it's intended to be able to keep a record of who is eligible. I know they're still working through the technology of this. So this is one of those we're going to have to take on notice because, to be honest, I don't want to say anything when I'm not sure exactly what its functionality is going to be right now because that's still being worked through because you can imagine how many different systems we're going to be crossing over in a national rollout. There'll be, you know, there's, there's, there's GP-based systems, there's um, going to be hospital-based systems, there'll be systems within aged care um, and I'm, I'm simply not familiar enough with the booking system at this point in time to be able to answer that question. But I hope we'll be able to answer the question in coming weeks. But the eligibility um, is a part, the, it, the, the training will give general advice around who and when someone is eligible. And a lot of the material on the website does say, and of course we know um, certain groups um, are not included under 16 children. We're not going to vaccinate them yet. But the important thing to re-emphasise is that this vaccine will be available to everyone in Australia, irrespective of the children, irrespective of whether you, you've got a Medicare card or not, whether any, any of your status, even as I understand international students, will be eligible for the vaccine. So um, the booking system is going to come, but I can't answer it right now. Thank, thanks, Alison. A um, couple of other questions. So with giving the vaccines, um, can RNs and E-endorsed uh, enrolled nurses give the COVID-19 vaccines with a medical order, um, just like all other Schedule Four medications? Or is the administration of COVID-19 vaccines um, limited to, um, you know, uh, registered nurse immunisers only? Oh, so, okay. So, yes, all registered nurses and enrolled nurses who have a diploma or who have completed their medication endorsement, because we don't tend to use EENs anymore, um, uh, can. This is a Schedule Four medicine. It's a prescribed medicine. Yes, like any other, it can be administered uh, as an intramuscular injection with all of the normal checks and balances in place. Um, the administration by... Um, immunization nurses obviously those who've completed the immunization training have um, additional um, they can do additional things it doesn't need to be prescribed but no every, every all all nurses who are eligible to provide medications can administer the vaccine we, we would just not have enough of us if it was only um, a, a, I think it's approved immunization nurses and nurse immunizers yeah but then remember, pharmacists are eligible to be immunizers as well. So it's just not, it's not just, not, not, I don't mean just nurses. I mean, it's not only nurses. Yeah. Um, there are pharmacists who can immunize as well. Sure. Okay. Thank you. So do you think that, um, is that likely to change um, from state to state, um, you know, with the jurisdictions um, that, that, are, that are in place? And we know that, that there'll be slight changes uh, between each jurisdiction. So is that is that likely to be across the board or do you think that will change in some of the states? 
and territories. I'm not quite sure what you mean by change, Sam. So within each each state and territory, the Drugs and Poisons Acts are do slight, vary slightly, but then so does the legislation that allows under certain circumstances for, for instance, a chief health officer or a, um, a secretary of a department can, can provide additional authority for nurses to do certain things. So it will be important for nurses to be familiar with what, what their responsibility is as a registered nurse, whether registered or enrolled, um, and also know and be fairly familiar with whatever the state's, their jurisdiction's drugs and poisons requirements are. Um, and it may be, by example, I remember, for instance, during the H1N1 pandemic, I was then in Victoria, and we gave nurses authority to, um, to, get, to um, provide um, antivirals without a prescription. And that was um, that's within the law in Victoria under certain circumstances that can do that. So it may be, for instance, that they broaden who might administer um, the vaccine. And for instance, it might be students who might do that. So each jurisdiction will take a consistent approach in many ways, but then to be able to ensure they've got the right workforce, they may add some other options in as well. So be familiar with what your jurisdiction says and does. And if you're not sure, ask. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Alison. So um, on, on the topic of nurses and nurse immunisers and who can do what, we have a national education framework for um, health professionals now around immunisation. So it's the national guidelines for all the immunisation credentials and study we need to do. So at the moment, we have different courses that are recognised in different states and territories and some give RPL and some overlap to different states and territories. There's kind of a lot going on in that space. So can we expect to move towards a, a national system for authorised nurse immunisers? I think the questions around this whole new amazing, never been seen before vaccine rollout has brought some of these kind of, or highlighted some of these issues for authorised nurse immunisers and registered nurses considering studying for their authorisation. So is there a chance that we're going to move towards um, some sort of national framework for, for that authority? And given that also the, um, the ANMF did the uh, like survey a little bit before Christmas to just have a look at how many nurse immunisers we had in Australia and, and where they were located. And that kind of data hasn't been looked at before. What can you tell us about this possibly getting a little bit easier to navigate? There, there is a, 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 a consistent framework for the immunisation. Um, to be honest, Suzanne, right now, I think we've got an awful lot of priorities on our, on our plate and, and creating one standard qualification across the system is, is not within my, my um, horizon planning right now. The, the challenge is we're a federated country with a number of different jurisdictions that have different rules. Um, I think there's been, we've come a long way to greater consistency of the training, um, but I I can't give any commitment or whether or not there'll be a point in time where we may move to this. It would, to be honest, I'm not sure. I, I've commenced the training myself 
um, because I'm not an, uh, an immunisation nurse, but I was interested to understand the training. Um, although fitting it in with my schedule at the moment is a bit of a challenge. Um, but I'm not, I don't know what it would take and whether it's possible to get one standard system across the country. So I think it's something somebody may want, want to look at, but it's sort of, it's not a priority right now. It's a bit like railway gauges. <laughs> Thanks, Alison. Yeah, if they'd got, I wish they'd gotten that right the first time. <laughs> anyway, um, so will there be Medicare item numbers for um, nurse immunizers and and nurse um, practitioners? Okay, so this question has two parts to it, really, because um, nurse practitioners are um, do have provider numbers and therefore can. Um, can bill for a number of things under the Medicare arrangements. Nurse immunizers do not have provider numbers and therefore are not able to bill under Medicare uh, for that reason. Um, so at the moment, the rollout um, and the expression of interest for the first of 1B, the expression of interest has gone out to general practice. Um, we're working and have been working with um, the College of Nurse the Australian College of Nurse Practitioners to look at how we can now engage nurse practitioners um, as a part of the rollout for the program. And I met with Leanne and the uh, task force uh, yesterday to talk about how this will look. Remember, this is a rollout and it's got a lot of stages until we get to the general population. Um, and so uh, we'll look at that with the college and how we might um, engage nurse practitioners in the in the program going forward, but because uh, nurse immunizers don't aren't um, don't have provider numbers, then they won't be able to bill under Medicare. Sure, thank you um, for answering that. Um, just wondering, um, with home visits, um, is there a billing number for just giving a vaccine? If if the nurses would go, um, if the nurse immunizers were to go and do a home visit. Um, is there any um, billing number for that? Well, Sam, I, I think I just answered that. Nurse immunisers don't, can't bill under Medicare because they don't have a provider number. So I'm not clear under when, when that, when a circumstance where a nurse immuniser would do that. Um, okay, so um, the as part of, a nurse of home vaccines for. Um, home uh, for aged care at home, home care will be a part of the Commonwealth-led um, rollout program. So the people in, the, in, in home care, aged care at home and home disability care are a part of that rollout program. So they will be captured within that. Right, okay. Um, and funding for infrastructure like... Um... I don't know, buying or renting additional vaccine fridges, data loggers, um, you know, additional space, that sort of thing. Is the government thinking about um, funding for those sort of uh, items at all? So, again, the um, this is, I would assume, a relative to clinics um, and where clinics might be considering um, uh, being putting forward an expression of interest, which has been out there. I think it's closed yesterday or today. Um, so yeah, tonight, all of the yeah. Yeah, all of this information should be available under the expressions of interest and there's a Q&A section. I have to be very careful, Sam, because of probity. 
So anyone who's interested in expressing an interest from a clinic from a clinic perspective needs to make sure they go to that that EOI website to get the most up to date information. Um, and that's where that information about what will be included in funding for this expression of interest on that website. Sure. Okay. I think we've got a link to that um, on our COVID webpage, Suzanne, I think, haven't we? Yep. There's okay. a link to that, that one there. Right. Great. Thank you, Alison. So we have finished the, uh, the prepared questions. We're going to jump into the questions that are coming in live and there's been lots of questions. So thank you to everyone who's been asking questions and also upvoting questions. So the uh, most popular questions come to the top. So I'll throw it to Suzanne and um, feel free to jump in and, and uh, ask away. We've fielded, as Mitch said, you know, so many questions from our APNA members and, um, you know, we thank you for your input and it really helps us make use, um, the best use of Alison's time, which we're very grateful for tonight. Uh, The um, first couple of questions that have come in from our um, APNA members is around consent forms, Alison. I guess it's, it is something that's front of mind for nurses doing any invasive procedure that we, you know, we're very big on crossing our T's and dotting our I's and getting it right. So um, it's important for us to, to know um, all the ins and outs of that. There has been some whispers in some of the medical media around some sort of standardised written consent form um, that may or may not be linked to the national booking system. And um, so that we're wondering if you know anything about how consent's going to look um, for the vaccine rollout. And with that, I'm kind of thinking with your answers to previous questions around how Schedule 4 medications work with um, medical orders and nurses, that if there was a standard consent process um, or even at a practice level a consent process, that um, nurses would be fine to be a part of that process or do you envisage that that's going to have to be doctor-led? No, I don't. No, my understanding is it doesn't need to be doctor-led. So, for instance, the InReach program for aged care is is a, is a, a model of a of a workforce, an immunisation trained or credential or whatever word we want to use, workforce. Um, but but absolutely, with with any procedure such as this, we all know the the importance of consent. My understanding is ATAGI, who is the advisory board to government on the vaccine, has provided advice on on consent. um, And that has just been finalised into um, a process that will be released very shortly because it's a question, Suzanne, that's coming up constantly about consent. And we all have learned the importance of that. So, yes, yes, consent. Who can consent for whom? All of those things are coming um, I understand they are looking to try to standardise that into a standard form. Um, I know that at the moment, the thing I know a great deal more about than anything, well, I don't know a great deal about anything, but I know that, for instance, um, it will be the facility, the aged care facility, that will be uh, responsible for getting the consent of their residents, for example, um, as is the way in aged care with, um, with flu. And obviously, if there's a guardianship, arrangement then the um, then they'd need time to be able to arrange for that that um, that consent to be provided through a through a guardian 
What about, um, you know, refusal of vaccines and um, people who work in, in healthcare? I know I was listening to something about this on the radio this morning, actually. Um, what's, what's happening in that space? Um, if somebody works as a healthcare worker, um, say in an aged care facility, and they personally don't want to have the vaccine, you know, where, where do they stand, I guess, in that situation? And I understand this could be a tricky question. Okay, so I'll start with the general answer, which is that the vaccine, receiving the vaccine is voluntary. Okay, so I think I think from the Prime Minister down, everyone's been really clear that, that receiving the vaccine is, is a voluntary thing. The question was asked of the Australian Health Protection Principal Committee, AHPPC, which I am a member as the Chief Nursing and Midwifery Officer. We were asked to provide advice on whether or not it was felt that it was necessary to mandate the vaccine for, at that point in time, it was aged care workers. Um, because we know that aged care workers work with the most vulnerable in our community. We know some of what the mortality is in the over 80s, for instance. So at this point in time, the advice to governments, to the National Cabinet, is that AHPPC do not believe there is sufficient evidence at this time to mandate the vaccine. The reason for that is, is that whilst we know there's now evidence that the vaccines are safe and that they are highly effective against the transmission, they're preventing severe disease and death. At this point in time, we don't have sufficient evidence about the vaccines to, to know um, categorically that they prevent transmission. Now, as, as more material comes in every day, we can see um, internationally reports about the countries that are advanced in their vaccine program, that there appears to be a reduction in transmission, but as yet we don't know if that's a result of lockdown or the vaccine. And we will have to wait until there's published peer review material to know and understand if it affects the transmission of this. So if at some point in the future, the evidence supports the mandate, then AHPPC will revisit that. So I would suggest, and I know this has always been a thwart argument amongst our population about um, vaccines and, and choices, but at this point in time, there's no intent to, to mandate. Um, and an individual will have to talk with their employer um, about the relative risk if they choose not to be vaccinated we know that's the same with things like hepatitis B, um, influenza, all of those things that we know now, that it's a relative risk discussion with you and your employer about um, where you work if, if you choose not to be vaccinated. Thank you. Alison, just a question on the training that you spoke about earlier, and this has been yet another hot topic. Um, when do we anticipate that the mandatory training for vaccinators involved in the COVID vaccine, nine, COVID-19 vaccine, too many words, um, when do we anticipate that that training is going to be available? Um, I, in the next, probably in the next few days, Oh, great. We're, we're, as, as soon as we can, we're here doing it tonight, trying to, we've had a role with working with ACN to, on this. Um, so 
we are working as hard as we can to get it done. And ACN have done this at lightning speed. Um, and they're to be congratulated for all of the work they've done. And many people have contributed to this and we're very grateful for that. So very shortly, I just don't want to preempt, I can't preempt an announcement by a minister and the minister will want to announce this. So very shortly. Oh, go on, Alison, let, let it out. We don't mind. We won't tell anybody. We promise. <laughs> Just 1,500 of your close friends on this. Yeah, yeah, just a few. Thank you. I know it's it's hotly anticipated and we can't wait to see it and get it done so we can get out there and uh, and roll this thing out. <laughs> well, we haven't actually got any vaccine in the country yet, remember? Yeah, but you're going to have this awesome primary care nurse workforce that are ready to go. <laughs> okay, so um, questions about... Um, the dose in the vials, Alison. Um, do you will they do you know if they'll be um 10 or 8 dose vials? Okay, so we can only talk about the Pfizer vaccine because that's only the only one that's been approved for use in Australia. So, my understanding is that there are six doses in the multi dose vial, but it is really important that this is a, a, um, a very delicate product. And it is, and Pfizer are very clear on the instructions about how to reconstitute, how to, because um, you invert it, you can't shake it, you just have to invert it. And then the methodology and systems of drawing it up, because it does need a lot of skill and you need to follow very clearly the instructions about um, making sure that, you, that each step is followed. So the training covers that. But okay. if someone's got a really burning interest to have a look, you can actually go and look at the Pfizer website and it's got some video. I think it's got some stuff now about, about how to do it. Um, but it is included in the training. But it is, as always, we all know as nurses, the importance of following the instructions very clearly to, to make sure that it's safe. But six, um, six doses are understand. If you're really clever, I understood you, you could get seven out of it, but you'd have to be a pretty skilled person at being able to get um, the entire content out of a, a glass vial. Okay. Thank you. Alison, we understand from the information that's come out so far how important and how critical uploading information to the AIR is going to be during the whole process for recording dose one and dose two and timeframes in between and giving space between other vaccines and all of that information that needs to be taken into account. Now, there has been some information um, come out around the ability of the AIR to now receive like a batch number or a code uh, that's going to be a requirement for COVID vaccines. And there's a question that's come up around um, scanning codes and, and barcode scanners. Is that something that will on, is only likely to apply in the, the bigger hubs and with the 1A rollout? Or is barcode scanning and scanning of codes going to be the type of thing we'll be seeing in general practice in the primary care setting with the 1B rollout? Susanna, I'm, I'm not familiar enough with the the registry to, to, to know that. I I certainly haven't heard any suggestion about barcodes, um, but we'll have to take that one on notice. I'm I'm not I've not heard anything to suggest barcodes, but that doesn't mean just because I don't know that. Uh, you can imagine how much information there is around this 
um, at the moment. Um, so we'd have to take that on notice. Yeah, and we appreciate that. And I guess I want to reassure um, the members online tonight that the there's, there is a lot out there and there is a lot changing and it's changing really fast. So um, particularly with these questions that have been asked by lots of you, um, we're uh, recording those typed in questions and we will follow them up. And when information is available, we'll pop it up on our COVID page on the website and we'll link you to the right parts of the department page, which Alison's already mentioned. Um, so barcode scanners, funky new age gear, um, we'll, we'll let you know when we know. So there's a question around um, public and public indemnity insurance um, to administer the vaccine. And the question says, as a nurse, will I need to purchase more public indemnity insurance to administer the COVID vaccine? Okay. Which that's a very, it will really to some extent depend upon the employment arrangement of the individual that's asking that question. So I'm not I'm not an expert on on insurance. Um, so sorry, Francis. Sorry, Francis. It should be covered under there. Yeah, normal. it, in normal in normal circumstances, this is just the administration of medication and should not need any additional indemnity. So um, you need to comply as a registered nurse with the requirements to to have insurance to be able to practice. We all require to do that, whether it's through as an individual or through our employer or through a third party, such as the membership of an organisation, but there's no need to, in, to purchase any additional. There's nothing in I can think of that would require anyone to have any additional insurance. No, no. But you need to make sure you comply with the current um, nursing and midwifery board requirements to have insurance. Thanks, Alison. I'll um, jump in and, and add there that we um, have had that question um, a few times over the last couple of weeks. Um, a lot of the because we have APNA members online tonight, a lot of them will have um, professional indemnity insurance through APNA. So I just want to reassure everybody that we um, have gone back to um, the insurer to check and Alison's absolutely on the money. Work within your scope of practice, be insured, know, do the training, work to the compliance policies and procedures of your the place where you work the setting with within you work and you are covered by your current um, current indem professional indemnity insurer um, another question is um, around the bits and pieces the consumables um, you know I guess the whole where we're trying to be conservative I think in healthcare you know we're trying to do the right thing um, by the cost of consumables to the place where to our employers where we work to the businesses that we work for and we're also mindful um that you know a throwaway society is not a great thing either and then COVID came and all of a sudden everything went you know more disposable than ever and more throwaway than ever and um so consumables are something that again is at front of mind of nurses who are running clinics and treatment rooms and um setting up immunization clinics across the country uh is there plans for the government um through the vaccine rollout program to help support the cost of those consumables um in the primary care space particularly in general practice where there's that weird private public share of funding thing going on yeah so i think that again i'm going to refer to the fact whatever's in the expression of interest and what and how that will be funded suzanne um because 
yes, I'm, my priority is to make sure people use the appropriate and, and necessary um, equipment and the training outlines the equipment you require you require to administer this vaccine safely. Um, again, it, the, the funding of, of primary health from this perspective is probably beyond my um, my skill base. It's probably something that we, we you could explore through the, the primary health um, program um, through that way. But I'm just I'm not familiar enough with that to to be able to give you that answer. My expertise is more in the, the the idea about the rollout and the clinical aspects rather than perhaps the administration. With the AstraZeneca vaccine, um, will it need to be reconstituted as well? And then how long can we keep it for once we've uh, reconstituted it? So some are, I'm not I'm not able to provide that advice as yet. There yes. is some general information around, but because the vaccine's not been approved and for use in Australia. The instructions very clear to me that we need to wait um, because we can't do anything that preempts its approval in Australia. So I think you will find that we do know there are there's information available across the system about the AstraZeneca vaccine, but I'm being very careful to only provide advice at this point, this point only, on that vaccine which has been approved for use in Australia. Okay, um, thank you. The advice on AZ will AstraZeneca will come. Yep. Um, and the process for its approval is is happening as we speak. It's being considered and all of the evidence discussed. So we should hear about that very soon. Okay, thank you. In immunisation land, Alison, um, the adverse events um, following immunisation is um, something that we're all aware of. And we all have jurisdictional responsibilities and pathways to report those. So um, they end up... Go so the end point is back with the TGA, so those things can be um, investigated. On the ground, though, when we're giving vaccines, we're a pretty well-versed workforce in how to manage the usual um, normal uh, effects of vaccines like the sore arm or feeling a bit woozy, especially if you're young and thin. Um, but if an a AEFI was to occur following a COVID vaccine, and that vaccine's being given in the patient's not usual practice because, as we understand, the rollout is um, not going to be, it's only going to be across the practices that um, fit the EOI criteria. How, does, how do you envisage that that will work? How will a patient be looked after if they have an adverse event following immunisation with a COVID vaccine? Will it be expected that the follow-up um, for that patient and the care will be delivered by the vaccinating practice or the patient's usual GP? I know, sorry, that was a long question. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to have to take that. I mean, yes, Suzanne, all of the immediate adverse, event, adverse incidents will be recorded on the program. As we know, that's all part of... Um, vaccine administration if there's any immediate reaction I guess um, I I don't know that I can <laughs> I can answer um, you you've got a lot of expertise in this so um, I mean people get vaccines in different places to their normal general practice how is it done normally I mean people go and have you know I have my vaccine here for influenza in this building in the Commonwealth Department of Health there must be mechanisms that exist in the current programs that do that. So 
Um, yeah, I guess, look, it's up to the patient. A patient can choose where they receive care, can't they? You know, yeah, we have an open yeah. health system and it's a well-supported open health system. So, yeah, you're right. If we look at how we do it now, um, yeah. if uh, if a patient of mine was happened happen to have a flu vaccine at a pharmacy and, and wanted follow-up, you know, some hours or days later for, for problems related to that, then they would be, you know, welcomed into the practice. Yeah. So... Um, I I guess we have to take a common sense approach to some of this stuff and realise that um, the whole workforce is going to be ready and really capable around all of this. So in that case, maybe the setting isn't isn't something that needs to be pre-dictated, that it'll be whatever works best for the patient at the time. And and Suzanne, we know we have an enormous success in Australia with vaccine programs and you know, immunisation of influenza this year was, or last winter was just phenomenal. So, yeah, we, we're not reinventing the wheel here. We are trying to use existing programs where we can. Um, and so those mechanisms that currently exist um, should be the systems we use again. Yeah. But importantly, the patient needs to be informed and of, of actions to take. But luckily, as I understand it, most of the um, uh uh, adverse, you know, the the adverse events as a consequence of the vaccines are mild, mm-hmm. unless someone's got a propensity towards anaphylaxis. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, things that we do in, in normal everyday practice, like you were saying, um, Alison, um, you know, I'm sure that the practice wherever the the individual goes to have their vaccine or or the, the or the spot where they have it should be given an advice sheet and you know some sort of um follow-up like we normally do, um, yeah, with, um, you know, with, with other vaccines and things that we give to people all the time. So um, another question uh, that's come through is, have you got any idea about when practices who've applied um, through the EOI may be uh, notified, whether or not they're successful? No, but I know there's been an enormous response, an enormous yes. response. Um, and so it's probably going to take them a little bit of time to get through all of these AOIs because it was quite massive. So sure. I, I don't know. No, um, it may be that there's something I don't. I, ha- I checked the website today and I didn't see when an answer might be available. But um, trust me, they're going to be working through this pretty darn quickly. <laughs> but I, I can't give you a date and I'm not involved in that, that part of the program. So, okay. yeah. All right. Thank you. Alison, have you heard anything in your networks around um, the possibility of it at some point in the next year or so the vaccine being available on private script? One of the um, areas that primary care nurses work in is occupational health. We have a lot of um, nurses in the OC health space. A lot of the OC health nurses are in kind of rural and remote areas, particularly with my big mine workers. Um, kind of camps and that sort of stuff. So they're feeling like their workforce are potentially a bit compromised because of communal living and and closed spaces and working in confined spaces. Um, So not from really a health point, a health history point of view, more of an occupational point of view. Um, And they are probably people that normally wouldn't fit the criteria for the early parts of the rollout because they don't have that pre-existing health history that would make them eligible. So would is there a point where you see that private companies would be able to pri- purchase a private supply of the vaccine or it be available on a private script set up 
if they wanted to, um, you know, cough up and pay for their workforce to be vaccinated like they do now for flu? I my sense is I, 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 it's, it's not something that I've um, come across, um, Suzanne. I, there's the, the, the message we are promoting is that we all need to wait in an orderly queue because we need to protect the most vulnerable first and those at the front line. Um, the vaccine will be free to everyone. Um, provided free by the Australian government. So um, I'm not aware of any plans to make it available um, for purchase at this point in time, no. Thank you. Um, Alison, primary healthcare, as you know, is a, um, you know, a big wide um, group of, of health professionals, of nurses who work in primary healthcare. And um, you know, we, we say everyone who's not in a, in a hospital is primary health care in one way or another. Um, I've had a question from um, some people um, who've tuned in tonight about the um, correctional services, um, people uh, in those facilities and also the health workers who work there. So clearly in those facilities, there would be um, elderly people who um, are eligible for the vaccine. Um, do you think that uh, a correctional care facility would be treated like a residential aged care facility? Do you see them falling into the, the first lot of the rollout of the vaccine or do you think um, they fit in somewhere else? So I'm looking right now on screen here, so I'll make sure I'm right. Um, and I don't see where there's protectional services. I guess that would probably other critical and high-risk workers. Um, so I'm not seeing them identified um, in 1A or 1B, right. um, unless they fit into that criteria of the, the age group or the chronic disease. Right. So then the mechanisms of getting that to through a correctional facility, I, I imagine the correctional health people will be working on how they'll achieve that. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So the the parameters exist within the, the correctional facility. So I guess if you had someone who was 17 or 18 and not at not at a high risk, then perhaps they wouldn't be in one or A or B and then maybe but, they'll come later yeah, and then. You not be in A, but. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and the 60 five pluses or, or people that are at high identified as high risk would yep. receive it. So, yeah, okay, great. All right, thank you. I'm mindful of time. I know um, we're, we're, we're getting close to, to winding up. Uh, there's been a few more questions um, around consenting and whether consent may be able to, able to be done ahead of time yeah. from the point of view of rolling out, um, you know, the to do a socially distanced vaccine clinic, um, it's kind of hard to get your head around, but we had our first taste of it, as you explained with the flu vaccine rollout last year. So we sort of know how to do that. Um, we don't necessarily all do the written consent thing, but we understand um, why things need to be different and uniformed this, um, with this particular rollout. So do you imagine that the consent process is something that patients will have access to prior to their clinic appointment or be able to do in an online format? Suzanne, I need to wait. we need to wait for the Otaki advice because I haven't seen it yet, but we've already okay. flagged that um, certainly the rollout that I've had the most involved with so far is HK because that's the most vulnerable. And we realise that we will, that because the facility will need to do that, they're going to have to do it ahead of time. 
So, yes, it will have to be done ahead of time and um, and how that's worked through really um, will be part of an enrolment program and about how people book in. Yeah. Thank Alison um, very much for your time. Uh, we really do appreciate it. In the next webinar, we'll be joined by Professor Julie Leask, who will discuss COVID vaccine hesitancy and what nurses can do. We will cover what you need to know about COVID vaccine hesitancy, the proportion of the population, demographics and reasons, how to act, techniques and conversation tips, and what to do, the triage and treat approach. This APNA member-only event will be on Wednesday the 24th of February at 7pm. Keep an eye on APNA's weekly newsletter, The Connect, for more details and the registration link. There is a link in the show notes to subscribe to The Connect if you're not currently receiving it. Did you know that on average, APNA members claimed over $3,200 through APNA's professional indemnity insurance in 2020? Join as an APNA member in February and add on insurance for only $130. You'll receive 14 months for the price of 12 on membership and insurance. Click the link in the show notes of this episode or visit apna.asn.au forward slash insurance. It's a busy time in primary health care, particularly in general practice, due to the imminent arrival of both COVID and flu vaccines. To discuss this and the current challenges for nurses, APNA President Karen Booth caught up with Tony Pilkington from Radio 5AA to discuss. Hello, Karen. Welcome to Afternoons. Uh, hello, Tony, and thank you for the invitation. I oh, look pleased to have a chat here. Tell us, what are, what are just some of the challenges that uh, that yourself and the other primary health care nurses are, are facing as we head towards the, uh, hopefully, the beginning of next month, the uh, the rollout of the uh, of the vaccine, the, the COVID-19 vaccine? What are, what are some of the challenges that you, you face right from the word go? Look, I think it's a very busy time of year, particularly in general practice. So we have, it's the time of year when patients are coming back to see their GP, to see their nurses for their chronic care and to have all of their paperwork updated. So it's a busy time and we're trying to get ready to make sure that we have space and efficient systems set up ready for the COVID vaccine rollout. We're also getting close to the time of year for when the flu vaccine rolls out, so it's going to be a very busy time nationally. Yeah. So can people have a combination of the two, the COVID vaccine and the flu vaccine? Could they have that at the same consultation at the the same time? Uh, The advice from ATAGI, which is um, the body that oversees the uh, vaccine approvals and advice, says they want them separated this year by at least two weeks. And whilst it's not contraindicated, they're probably doing that so that they can see if there's any side effects from one, it's not confused with side effects from the other. And remember that we're going to be collecting and monitoring uh, information and data on patients who have had the vaccine. So um, I think for the moment, it will mean that people will have to have several visits to the doctor in the next few months to get the different vaccines. Karen, you'd be aware of this. At this stage, there is some confusion out there. People are saying, am I eligible? Do I fit into the category that will get the first lot of vaccines? Now, what are those categories? Obviously, um, people in, uh, in aged care facilities, uh, people like yourself, uh, healthcare nurses. Who are some of the other people that fall into the category that will be immediately able to get the vaccine? 
For the frontline workers, so people who are working in the um, in the in the immigration yeah. hotels, the border protection, they'll be key priority because they have a lot of close contact with incoming travellers. After that, it will be hospital workers who are dealing, again, those frontline emergency um, workers and then into aged care, which, of course, they're very high risk from the uh, fatal effects from COVID-19. So they are absolutely the key priority areas. And then after that, in 1B, we'll see the rollout through general practices for um, for starting from the 65 age up, as well as yeah. healthcare workers. And then after that rollout, we'll then see the rest of it flow through over the year for the rest of the population. Now, a friend, Tom, from up at Netherby, said to me a couple of days ago, he said, Pilko, is it mandatory? Tom's a 74-year-old. He's a little sceptical about the whole thing. He couldn't really back it up, but he said, oh, I'm not too sure about this. Uh, it's not mandatory. You don't have to have the vaccine, do you? No, you don't. It, it is your choice. Um, the more people vaccinated, the higher the yeah. level of protection for the community. But every vaccine is a choice. It's not mandatory. Um, but a lot of, you know, you'd be highly advised to have the vaccine. Okay. Sarah One... wants to know a question. Um, mm-hmm. After you've had the first vaccine, when will you supposedly have the backup? Are we talking two or three weeks? Will you be notified? Uh, how will you know if indeed you need to go back and have a second uh, second shot? Yeah, absolutely right there, Tony. It will be about two to three weeks, depending on the recommendation from the particular uh, vaccine company, whatever brand it had. You'll have a second dose of the same brand. And there will be a national record system. So your doctor or the clinic that you go to will record it in their register. And then that will then be recorded in what we call the Australian Immunisation Register. And this will then carry the information if you have a My Health record. You'll be able to see when you have the vaccine and the brand that you've had. And that's certainly the intention at the moment. Karen, can a, a GP or a medical centre, can they actually refuse to do the vaccine, saying, no, we've got other concerns, other patients to see, uh, we're simply not equipped or we simply don't want to do it? Is, is that an option available to some GPs and medical centres? Uh, it, it is. And in fact, the expression of interest that went out was asking GPs, practices, if they would like to put in an expression of interest to run the clinics. Now, some practices will want to do that. There are others where they think the logistics may be difficult for them, particularly um, for additional pressures on their, their teams and their staff. And one of, one of the, um, I think one of the great opportunities um, that we need to really look at that wasn't mentioned in the expression of interest was to be able to fund practices, so fund clinics, to be able to run nurse-led clinics or a pool of funds that would be given to the practice and then the practice could flexibly decide, do I want the GP or my GP and my nurse immuniser to do the clinics together? So that wasn't quite clear from the document. We'll yet to see the final work for a framework that will be how that rolls out. Now, there are some practices who aren't accredited um, 
that will be excluded from having access to the vaccine. And those practices will have to refer their patients to either a state-funded centre or to another general practice. And that will so go obviously through. the thing to do, Karen, is to actually phone your GP, phone your medical centre and That's see if right. indeed uh, you're eligible, point one, and if indeed they're uh, doing the inoculations. Just finally, when do you expect the first of the vaccine rollouts to be available? Uh, I'm Probably March, I think, for the general public. We're gearing mm-hmm. up their special education modules being released and then I think the Pfizer vaccine is coming at the end of the February, so that's the 1A vaccine. And then after that will then be looking at rolling out nationally. So I think March, April is a realistic expectation. Karen, you're in for a busy time. Lots of love and thanks for the time this afternoon. Karen Booth, the President of the Australian Primary Health Care Nurses Association, talking uh, talking about the, the COVID-19 rollout sometime in March. To keep up to date on the latest, check out the APNA COVID page. Visit the APNA website and on the homepage, click on the link up-to-date COVID information for nurses working in primary health care. Nursing Australia, the podcast for Australian nurses working together towards a healthier Australia. Australia is working hard to ensure we all have access to safe, effective and free COVID-19 vaccines, which will give us the protection to go about our everyday lives. The COVID-19 vaccines are being assessed carefully by independent clinical experts to ensure all potential vaccines meet Australia's high safety and quality standards. After vaccines are approved, they'll be rolled out, going to those most in need of protection first. To keep up to date, visit health.gov.au. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. Working in such serious roles, us nurses need a good laugh from time to time. So I'd like to introduce to you Two Humorous Nurses, a podcast that'll give you a giggle. I found this podcast and now I'm hooked. Nursing's challenging, confronting and serious. People's lives are in our hands. And it's said if you don't laugh, you'll cry. A lot. Somehow Kelly and Alicia, the hosts from Two Humorous Nurses, have a way of hooking into the dark side of nursing humour, allowing listeners to find the funny amongst the tragedy. Kelly started her career in nursing as an enrolled nurse in Western Australia and then 10 years later became a registered nurse in a regional hospital in Victoria specialising in cancer care where she gets to work closely with the local primary healthcare nurses. Alicia's a registered nurse with experience across kids, anaesthetics and theatre, and now in her local regional hospital urgent care centre, she's also very engaged with local primary healthcare nurses, trying to keep her community well. Kelly and Alicia join me for a chat. I started by asking them where did the ideas for their podcast come from? Kelly and I worked on the ward together in our small hospital for a very short time. But the chemistry was supernatural and we would literally spend our whole shifts in stitches and, well, when we weren't arguing. (laughs) But I think we're both quite similar in personality but then have great differences as well. And um, it was actually Kelly's idea for the podcast. So I just, I love telling stories. So, um, and I've had, I've done so many different things in nursing and especially on night shifts and stuff, you just sit around and tell random stories and blow everyone's minds. And I was like, oh, I should do a podcast because I'm funny. (laughs) And no one told me not to. Like everyone just said, go for it. It sounds great. So I sort of started thinking about it and doing a bit of research and I messaged Alicia and I said, you want to do a podcast with me? And she's like, you're crazy. 
And then I got accidentally drunk on a night when COVID said you could have five people at your house and our neighbour popped over and we started to have a few drinks and then I bought $500 worth of podcasting gear. <laughs> Messaged Alicia and said, we're on. <laughs> so I guess we're doing a podcast. <laughs> And then we just sat down and we were like, what do we want to talk about? And we just, before we knew it, we had 15 topic ideas and here we are. The absolute raw honesty. You guys say stuff in your podcast that we know every single nurse has said under their breath or quietly to one co-worker and you guys are just Uh out there telling the world. You know, you had a really, a really... I don't know, uh, uh, kind of rocked me a little bit, that episode around um, the raw take on nurses' mental health and your own mental health Mm -hmm. and well-being, you know. There was parts of that that had my bottom lip wobble and there were parts of it that had me in stitches. And it's, it's great that you can bring all of that. And I don't know how you do it, but you do it so well. Um, And the stories about, nurses when you're off duty I'm just like it just took me back 25 years to being stopped in the supermarket in a country town and you know can you just have a look at Joey's foot sister because he <laughs> had hanging out of it this morning you know and I'm just like no I just really need a Powerade and a puff of salt and vinegar chips <laughs> so true and but it happens we all know it as the nurse in the family the family's go-to person as the nurse in your community when you're off duty you're kind of on duty so mm-hmm. um tell me a little bit about where where they where those episodes and where those questions took you as nurses i think who what you hear of us on the podcast is exactly who we are in real life i think the off duty episode was it was very personal to me, obviously, my story with my father-in-law. And I think I'd, I'd told the story before, but I don't know if I'd ever told it in a way where, and Alicia asked me questions the whole way through, and I'd sort of got off the, got off when we finished, and I just thought, oh, wow, that was a lot. The mental health one, we sort of talked about doing a mental health one, and I knew it would be tough because we both have had our struggles, and, and definitely Alicia, and I, there were parts in that that we went way further than I could have imagined we were going to go with it. And um, when I got home that night, I actually messaged Alicia and just said, I can't believe that you shared so much. And and I, it was a, a great episode and I listened to it straight after we did it in the car and, and I said, you know, it made me cry again. And I just, like, just really, it was so emotional. And I think there's a safety barrier between we don't know that you guys are listening to us so when we do it it's just the two of us sitting in a room telling our stories and sharing them together and after the mental health one we got an email from a listener who told us his story about how he hit rock bottom and and he almost took his own life and he'd reached out and and got the support he needed and he was doing really well and I thought like we actually might help people out there with this takes some nerve I think you guys are doing an amazing job because yeah you're saying stuff that 
and telling stories that all nurses have had similar experiences and but not all nurses can talk about it not all nurses can put it out there and the relationship that the two of you have and you know you say it's the banter but it's a, a true friendship and a relationship and a trust there that kind of lets you push some of those boundaries in a way you've got each other's backs and that kind of stuff and I guess you know, it worries me sometimes, my primary nurse colleagues who work in rural or remote areas who are really geographically isolated from their peers and they, you know, can't, they've got no one to walk out the door and say, you know, mask off my time, that was a crappy shift, you know, and just to like let it out. And but by able to be engaged in your stories and your podcast, it's, it's something and, and, it, and it's real and it's genuine. And um, and I think this, that's why nurses love it so much. So tell us a little bit about the demographics of the people who are listening to your podcast. Probably at least 50% of our followers are nursing students. Um, or wow. Nurse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, and those are the, the people that seem to be the most engaged. And I guess because, you know, they're new and they they kind of are getting a bit of a behind-the-scenes look at the nursing <laughs> mindset or the, you know, we, we want to engage people and, we, and we're so open to feedback and so open to people's ideas. And we had all these students contacting us going, please, because we did the do's and don'ts of nursing episode and then we had all these students contact us like, can you do one like that but for students because <laughs> we have no idea what's going on and because they'd had such a rough year with COVID and a lot of them were feeling really overwhelmed and really underprepared and we thought, God, if that was us, like, and you can just imagine what they're going through and we thought, yeah, we've got to do something for them and give back to the people who are giving so much to us. Yes, so. It's great to, to hear back from people and I guess is, is that how you're getting some direction on where to from here? What's next for 2021? What are you going to do? Yeah, uh, definitely. We put it out there over the holiday period, um, like what people would want to hear from us and what they want. Um, we got a lot of, we want to hear more about you, which surprised us. So <laughs> we're going to do a couple of episodes, like Q&A episodes on who we are. And we've got questions from the followers as well. So we'll um, answer those. Um, we've got a few topics like nursing instinct, um, nursing personality types, how to be um, nursing and parenting, like the juggle that can be. We're hoping to get some guest speakers on. So we're working on some interesting nursing areas um which is probably your demographic with the primary health nurses we're looking for um you know like prison nurses and maybe nurse cosmetic nurses and remote area nurses so things that people that we in hospitals don't see a lot of and don't maybe don't understand or um, so we can get some big stories from them and interesting stories. And yeah, I think we look at, you know, what are the episodes that people absolutely love? And I think the ones that people love are the ones we really love doing as yeah. well. And I think you can tell when we get passionate or when we get excited about something because the energy just <laughs> changes. Thanks, Kelly and Alicia, for giving us an insight into the Two Humorous Nurses podcast. I know nurses will want to listen to some more. You can find their contacts in the show notes of this episode. And remember, it's humorous, spelt like the bone, H-U-M-E-R-U-S. That's all we've got time for for this episode, and thanks for listening to Nursing Australia. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with our next episode. Until then, stay safe and look after each other. I'm Suzanne Blackaby. 
Nursing Australia, the podcast for Australian nurses working together towards a healthier Australia. For more information, please visit us at www.apna.asn.au. Thanks for listening to Nursing Australia.